Welcome to the fifth session of Fairy and Fantasy. Today we shift to the underappreciated Middle English poem Sir Launfal. If you haven't read at least the first 300 lines of the poem yet, press stop right now and go listen to the recording I posted. Okay, done? Good. Then let's begin. Okay. Um, so today we are shifting to, to Sir Launfal's. Uh, 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 Aaron was asking me, uh, last night, uh, if it was just her, or did this story sound very familiar? Uh, if you took Arthurian literature, it should sound familiar, though not exactly familiar. We read the French version of this story, that is L'Enval by Marie de France, uh, in uh, Arthurian literature. That's actually the original version. This Middle English version is sort of a semi-translation of it. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so some of you will be sort of familiar with this story, though there are definitely some interesting different elements in this one, so make sure to pay attention uh, as you're going through. What I want to start with today, I want to, I hope we'll get to uh, talking about Triamor and uh, his actual encounter, uh, encounter with Fairy, capital F, uh, and his rather memorable, certainly to him, encounter uh, with a fairy uh, that we see, but I want to start where this story starts. We get a long build-up uh, to the encounter with Fairy, a good deal longer than we did with Sir Orfeo. Sir Orfeo was a story in which basically Fairy came and, you know, sort of came plundering into the human world. They, you know, they didn't provoke them, they didn't seek them, they, didn't, they were just sitting there minding their own business, taking a nap under an imp tree, and wham, right? Here, the situation is rather different. Not that Sir Launfal goes seeking Fairy by any means, um, but... It's a part of a very different kind of story. So what I, and specifically what I want to be looking at at the beginning is I want to establish by looking at the treatment of Sir Launfal and looking at the depiction of the Arthurian court in the way that it's set up, what exactly are, I guess I want to say, the values of this text? That is, what kinds of things are we set up? We should have some sort of parameters in place when we actually encounter fairies to be able to have sort of some, some set-up uh, comparison and contrast, some way to contextualize them. So I want to be thinking about this first story as, in that sense, a kind of context. What are, what are the... Values sound so hokey, but... What are the issues that this poem is concerned about? What does it emphasize? Mac? Definitely, definitely the keeping of promises. This is something, um, that, that is certainly something that's, that's strongly emphasized by Triamor herself when she talks to Lanval, though that technically outside the scope of our, our first discussion. I, I know I kind of, I, you know, invited you to stop uh, right at an exceptionally tantalizing moment. Um, you know, I, so we drew the curtain at they went to bed. Uh, but um, her, her admonitions to him we're sort of going to start with next time, um, because for, the, for, for Friday's class, I want to be focusing especially on, well, I mean, I, I, this poem actually works out pretty well in three parts. I think it'll work pretty well for our classes. That is, here we see sort of the setup to the fairy story and his initial contact with fairy. In the second class, we'll be looking at sort of Sir Launfal's life when he is, like, with Triamor, you know, his sort of life in partnership uh, or in communion with fairy, and then part three will be sort of what happens when things start to, uh, well, not exactly go bad, but anyway, when we have tension and difficulty. Yeah? 
uh, the value of a good reputation in comments, both in the quotes and uh, when, I'm not sure if this works, but it's one for all the pool, and you know, you're like, don't tell it on the pool, I don't want them to think badly of Good. Yeah. Rich, uh, riches and poverty are clearly emphasized, but I, 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 I agree, Jordan, I think it's important to emphasize. Reputation matters a great deal. In fact, that seems to be one of the reasons that wealth and poverty matters a good deal. Um, what other people think of you clearly matters to people in this text. Um, and that might be true whether you're someone like Launval, who is really a good guy, um, but does not get appreciated by everybody, or whether you are let us be blunt, a skanky hoe like Queen Guinevere uh, <laughs> who is trying to maintain you know, a false appearance of honor and respectability. Um, the story that this is based on, Marie de France's L'Enval, is without exception the most unflattering depiction of Queen Guinevere that I know of in, Arthur, in the Arthurian tradition. Um, it is just the most ap- unapologetically anti-Guinevere piece. Um, and the Middle English uh, version picks that up with gusto. So you may, especially if you like the Arthurian story, there are other versions of the story that you really like, you may feel uh, impulses to come to Guinevere's defense here. Um, I totally understand that. Uh, I enjoy very much, in fact, I will confess even more, versions of the Arthurian story in which Guinevere is not quite so horrible as she is in this poem. But in this poem, she's pretty horrible. So I don't think we should be trying to spend a lot of time recuperating her in this poem. We'll just have to sort of accept the fact that within the framework of this, she really uh, seems pretty dreadful. Um, Really, there's nobody worse. So, I mean, that is in this poem. So this, I think we're just going to have to reconcile ourselves to this and and kind of move on. Will? Um, I think it's interesting. um, She seems a lot nicer in this version than in the French translation that we read. Where, like, in this one, she's kind of smart. Like, like when, uh, when the two nights come back, she's like, oh, that was awful. How was he doing? And in the other one, she, like, she, she lies, and she, like, ruins her reputation. Right. She's going to do that here, though she will, she will, well, the accusations that Guinevere is going to make against Anfal here are going to be slightly less extreme than they were in the French version. But I think that's toned down, not necessarily for the sake of making Guinevere less horrible, but for the sake of sort of being more polite. Um, the Middle English version is shyer than the French version, a little less direct. Um, well, what? <laughs> yeah, anachronistically. It's a slightly cleaned up sort of family version. Like, I love the fact, for instance, in the description of Triamor, um, who's not named uh, in the French original. Uh, but anyway, when, when, when Lambeau first sees her in Marie's version, he walks in and there she is on a bed completely and unapologetically topless. She's just like, hi, I'm wearing almost no clothes. Why don't you come <laughs> over here? And they go to bed first and have lunch afterwards. Right? Whereas here, she's still kind of topless, but we're given this excuse like, well, it was, it was really hot, so she had, you know, like, removed a certain large percentage of her garments, because, you know, she was hot, and, <laughs> uh, and uh, 
they and then and notice they have they have they go, they have lunch first and they're like and and then I, let's go to bed right whereas that's not how the priorities lie uh, in 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 the French version so there there are a couple examples that you can see of this whereas where the the Middle English version is sort of it's the family version of the story uh, it doesn't change any of the essentials but uh, but it it kind of takes the the, 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 the sharp edges off a little bit as far as, uh, as, far as that kind of stuff goes. Yeah, Christine? Um, in line uh, 21, when they're talking about the men being equal, is that referring to everyone listed or just like the two guys right before him? Uh, let me see here. Line 21, you say? Oh, that yeah, that's referring to uh, that's sort of a semi-digression, um, a semi-digression uh, uh, in reference to to King Ban Bucht and King Bals. Um, that is, there are other stories about them, and so we're mentioning them. All of these people who are mentioned are mentioned because they're in other stories. That's why uh, that's why they get named in the list. Um, so these are names uh, that you, as listener to stories like this, will probably be familiar with. And there, they sort of digress to be like, and, you know, there's this really, fa- this, like, there's this really cool story about them. He, like, almost digresses to mention the story, but then kind of pulls himself back at the last minute. It's like, but, but we don't have time to talk about that now. Um, so, yes, I think that th- that's specifically them, that there is no match for those two guys. So that's just a, sort of a setup of the, of the, the Knights of the Round Table in general, and how, how great the members of Arthur's Court were. Um, I really like the expression, a couple lines down, the way that it sort of introduces and segues into the poem when it mentions Sir Launfal among the Knights of the Round Table, uh, and segues with, Whereof a noble tala among us shalawaka. Uh, that, uh, that metaphor of, and now... An excellent song about Sir Launfal is about to awake among us, meaning I'm, I'm about to tell it to you. Um, but again, notice the difference. Think about what we were talking about with Sir Orfeo and harping before, and all the emphasis at the beginning and the end of Sir Orfeo about now I'm going to harp this lay, you know, we're, we're, I'm going to be playing and singing this song about the harper, and the, the emphasis on the song and the music uh, is really foregrounded at the beginning and the end. Um, here, the actual singer, the actual teller, is backgrounded very significantly. The tale is awakening. It's like it's happening itself, right? The process, where this, this story, because this is not a story about stories, it's not a song about songs, it's much, it draws much less attention uh, to sort of the storytelling process. Um, though, though you'll notice the poet continues to interact with the audience all the way through. Right? There are these frequent interjections of like, you know, and so you may well believe it, right? I mean, he, where he keeps emphasizing particular points by saying, like, so I have heard it told, or so you can well believe it, and things like that. Um, that's a pretty common gesture in Middle English poetry. And I think one of the things that it should sort of help us remember is that this is, uh, texts like this were very frequently, and they would, they would been predominantly have been heard, recited, even among people who are literate, they would have been reading aloud. Um, so you, you sort of, there's this, repeated audience contact throughout the poem, which is kind of in- interesting to sort of notice in passing. Christine, go ahead. Uh, so, like, the, like, small parts where not in dialogue, there's, like, first person, that's the heartbreak. Yes, exactly. That's one of those interjections, sort of formulaic interjections to the audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What else, as far as 
as I said before, sort of values or uh, sort of themes do we see here in the early part? Go ahead, Kat. There's a big emphasis with the giving of gifts, which is a great upfront that one of your doesn't give landfall. I think it's a brand. And then later they make a big deal about the fairy queen, and then the fairy princess giving the gifts. Yes, yes, good. Generosity, huge, a huge thing. I mean, I would, I, I would put that definitely, you know, among the very top. You'll notice it's one of the first things that's emphasized about Launfal at the beginning. The first thing we're told about him, he's a great guy. How do you know he's a great guy? He's really generous. He gives, he gives lots of really good gifts away. And then that is immediately juxtaposed with nasty Guinevere withholding gifts from him, singling him out. And this is a thing that the Middle English version is is emphasizing. In the French version, Landval's story starts with him being passed over for gifts and being neglected. But there it seems to be neglect. And on on Arthur's part, this is just like a snafu on Arthur's part, a sort of administrative snafu. He overlooks Landval, which is sad because Landval is a great knight. And so when he's giving out kingly gifts of lands and wealth and things, he just sort of skips over Landval and Landval is sad. Um, and so he goes out to the woods by himself and meets the fairy. The, the setup to the fairy story is like, I don't remember what, 25 lines? It's really short uh, in the French version. We get much, much more here. And the more that we get is it, one of the things that's really expanded is this contrast with his generosity, right? He is this great noble guy, and you can tell that he's great and noble because of how generous he is. And he's not just forgotten. He's not just neglected. He's not just passed over. He is slighted on purpose by Guinevere. Um, and not only is he slighted on purpose by Guinevere, but this then also sort of carries over to Arthur. He sort of seems to consider himself as almost exiled from Arthur's court. At least he's exiling himself. Like, he's, he's done. He talks to the mayor as if he were cast out of Arthur's court, that he, he, he's not going back. So he has been excluded by this act, and also not only excluded, but apparently also impoverished. He gets poor really quickly. Um, and this also seems to be a consequence of the lack of generosity. Now, I mean, I don't think that, like, necessarily his, like, livable income for the next few years was dependent on whatever gifts Guinevere was giving out at her wedding feast. But it does seem to sort of point to this larger, this larger pattern of neglect, or rather to be sort of a signal for the fact that he is no longer going to be the recipient of the king's generosity. Um, we see Arthur just kind of going along with what Guinevere does almost all the way through. If Guinevere is a really aggressively bad character uh, in this poem, Arthur is almost a cipher. I mean, he, is, he does very little on his own um, and seems to kind of follow Guinevere around. Matt? Uh, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but doesn't Arthur actually give him gifts right as he's leaving in line 81? When he's leaving, when he's leaving, yes. Here we see, we see a difference in perspective. Um, that is that he, when, when Landval's leaving, he's like, oh yeah, and you should, go with, you should go with great gifts. He doesn't, he sends him with his, he says he should go with great spending, though it's clear he does not actually go with great spending because um, we know that he's poor very quickly. Um, Arthur, <laughs> it's possible. Um, it seems also even to possibly suggest, I think, a gap between Arthur's intentions and what's actually done. Um, Because, again, great spending is the word that's... And that's exactly what Lanval lacks, is spending. 
Um, and, uh, but he does give him, you know, his, uh, his, his nephews to accompany him. His nephews who don't, these nephews don't show up in any other story. But anyway, apparently Arthur's got some extra nephews here in this story, and they go along with him. Um, Arthur is clearly not dismissing him in disgrace. Arthur doesn't disapprove of Landfall. But it seems pretty clear, A, that Guinevere is setting out to persecute Landfall. And B, that it's working, that he's been separated from Arthur's court, and that he gets poor, uh, and, it, and, and his means are very significantly diminished. But I agree, I, Mac, I'm glad you brought up that passage, because I think we do see there, this is not a question, it's clear that Arthur has not, at this point, had his mind poisoned against Lanval by Guinevere or anything. He still highly regards him, he is still speaking as if he is, um, as if he wants to treat him really well. Um, the result, it seems, is that he's still actually not being treated excellently um, as he gets poor, so poor, so fast. Yeah? Um, maybe I'm uh, listening. What's the reason that boy that his father died and that he didn't have to say something? The mayor, like, was going to say it, but wasn't really clear exactly how it happened, but his father said something that he went to a Maybe... He mentions the father. He says to Arthur, I'm leaving because my father died and I need to bury him. And the father is never mentioned. Landval does, does not, in fact, go bury a father, nor is he ever mentioned again. I don't know if that's true or if he's just making an excuse. He says it's without father, so... Well, yes. I, I mean, you know, I mean, you're right. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, casting an unwarranted, uh, uh, you know, aspersion on, Lan- on Lanval's character that he would make up the story about the dad. Perhaps he got sidetracked along the way. Maybe. I, I, but we never hear about the dad or the funeral. It never comes up after that moment. And another thing. Okay, see, I'd been torn about whether or not to bring this up, because the fact is, I don't know what to do with it. But maybe you'll know what to do with it, so I'll bring it up and you can tell me. Um, the thing that he says to Arthur, that Lenval says to father, to, about his father, to Arthur, is almost a direct quotation from the Gospels. Does anyone remember? Now, this is, for those of you who took foundations, this is like advanced trivia. I wouldn't ask this on an exam. <laughs> because it's a small passage in the Gospels. But there's this passage in the Gospels where Jesus, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, I'm going to follow you. Uh, or, or Jesus says, come and follow me. And he says, uh, wait, my father died, and I have to go bury my father first. And Jesus says to the person, let the dead bury the dead. Got it. Let the dead bury their dead. Um, in other words, Jesus says, this is, th- now there are lots of discussions about what exactly that means. Like, some people suggest that that passage is not really suggesting that the guy's like, my dad's funeral is in five minutes, just just hang on again. But rather that this is basically evidence that the, like, he wants to like straighten out his inheritance first and he wants to make sure that his property is in line. And then once he's got like the legal matters squared away, he's going to come and follow Jesus. So that what Jesus is saying is, uh, you know, like remember the whole thing about serving two masters, can't serve God and mammon, like forget the inheritance, forget uh, you know, your father's estate, and just come. Um, that's one popular interpretation of that passage. Anyway, I said, I don't know what to do with this, but it seems to me really striking that the excuse that he gives is this, is, it's almost a quotation. 
uh, I, must go, I must go bury my father, especially since the father is so conspicuously absent from the rest of the poem. I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that. Any thoughts? What do you guys think? Christine? Well, I, I don't know if this is related, but I find it <clears throat> weird that I kind of connected it to um, what we had said before about guys mourning a loss by like running into the woods. And like he goes into the woods like after he's reached financially rock bottom. So he hasn't like lost a love, he's just lost a lot of money. Right, and, and more than just money, but, but yeah, and yeah, because it, it is tied up with money is really important in this poem, and that seems okay. That is in the sense that I, it does not seem to me that we can take this poem as saying, really, money is not important, people. Don't think about money. Money is important to Lanval, and that seems okay, actually, in the poem that people are comfortable with the fact that uh, that money seems to actually point to something. Um, that moment when he is at his lowest point and going off into the woods, you'll remember the conversation that he just had with the, with the mayor's daughter, who was inviting him to dinner, which was very nice and generous on her part when nobody else would even look at him because he looks like a beggar, right? Um, we have this like little gnarly, hairy, dirty, ill-dressed guy's motif going on so far in this class, don't we? Um, which actually is kind of a fairy tale motif, um, that those people are often the people who end up getting taken in. But anyhow, whatever. Um, remember, in that conversation with the mayor's daughter, what he says is, remember, it's, it's Trinity Day, and everyone's going to church, and he's like, I really, I really wanted to go to church this morning, uh, you know, to celebrate the Feast of the Trinity, but I lacked shoes and hose and clean pants. Like I, couldn't, I couldn't even dress for church, and he didn't want to go to church in rags. Um, and the response that he gets is not, it's not about your clothes, Lanval, you should have gone to church. Right? There are more important things than clothes, there's more important things than money. That doesn't seem to be the message. He... It seems, to, it seems actually to matter. How he looks points to something. This is actually another theme that I find really interesting uh, and kind of complicated in this first part of the poem, is the question about appearances and the relationship between appearances and reality. Right? Sometimes you can see a gap. Frequently, we can see a gap. Lanval, really, he's a good guy. Really, he's noble, even though on the outside he looks shabby and his externals, as far as his wealth and everything, don't match up to that. Guinevere looks great on the outside. She's very beautiful. She appears very honorable uh, and everything else, but, but really inside, less so. But then we meet Triamor, who is very beautiful and very wonderful, but then she looks very beautiful and very wonderful. That is, that is manifested outwardly perfectly. It seems to be why... They look so rich. You, you, you focus on the amount of time that this poem spends on describing clothes. We get lots of clothing description. Now, in general, we love clothing description in medieval romances. Medieval romances, in general, spend a lot of time describing clothing. Um, but 
that certainly is something that this, that this poem is interested in. And when we get, I mean, like the intimate description of what the servants who come out to him with the basin and towels are, are wearing. And all of this seems to point to not a false thing. That is where the appearance really matches the reality. They really are great. They really are beautiful. They really are above everything else. And that's why they look the way that they do. Um, so we don't get just sort of a simple or single treatment of this idea, this, 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 this version of the relationship between, between appearances and reality. Yeah, Christine? But, um, just to relate the two events of his leaving King Arthur's court with his, I don't know, I guess excuse for the father's burial, I sort of connected it with that other part later that I wasn't sure exactly like what his direct reason was for going into the woods I saw it as like maybe being ashamed so then I sort of thought that maybe like that's why he left King Arthur's court because like you said um, in town um, he he almost talks of himself as exiled like was he planning to just not come back to King Arthur's court until he accumulated goods somehow like was he just did he leave just because he was ashamed like I don't know yeah, I mean, you're right that he does. He, the reason we're given for why he goes out into the woods is he doesn't want to be around anybody because he's ashamed. He's ashamed for people to look at him. He's ashamed. Um, he's, he's, he's trying to separate himself from people. As you say, he's not running mad into the woods, right? But he is retreating into the woods. Um, and it is then when he has retreated from all human society that he meets, that he encounters fairy there. Um, but coming back to the father thing, um, you, you may have noticed uh, this sort of heavy Freudian slip I made before when I said the word father when I was going to say Arthur, um, and I think that that was a significant Freudian slip. Um, that seems to me one way to understand that passage, um, that is whether or not he had an actual paternal unit who perished. Uh, he is, at the very least, figuratively, uh, losing his father in his separation from Arthur. Um, and I think that that seems to me a very evocative sort of echo at the very least as he is saying to Arthur, I can't, you know, I'm not going to stay. I can't stay here. I have to go. Um, and he connects that with the loss and the burial of his father. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Lonfall is going out and, you know, like erecting a tombstone for Arthur or something, but sort of figuratively, he kind of is. Um, and why does he do this? Why does he leave? Arthur's obviously not kicking him out, as Mac pointed out. He feels very forsaken by Arthur, because while Arthur says, oh, I'll give you, I'll give you gifts, I'll give you things to spend, he really doesn't, and when Guinevere slights Sir Lampal, he Arthur doesn't really do anything. So. Yeah, and there's, Arthur has already done this sketchy thing. Right? That is Mary Guinevere, uh, who is really scared. And they know, and Lanval knows, and we're told that he's not the only one who knows that she is a woman of, I was about to say of doubtful virtue, but that's not even true. There's no doubt about it, right? <laughs> they, they, they know that she has, that she takes many other lovers. Um, and this apparently, you know, that we, so we are not, so, you know, Lancelot gets mentioned, of course, in the list of people who are there at the round table, but he doesn't get singled out, right? This is not, we're, I, so we're not supposed to be envisioning, 
you know, the great and famous love triangle of Lancelot and Guinevere and Arthur, um, which, by the way, didn't even exist yet, really, uh, when Marie de France wrote the original. She was writing at about the same time as Chrétien de Troyes, who is the dude who invented the Lancelot-Guinevere-Arthur love triangle. Um, and Lancelot was not mentioned uh, by name in Marie's version because he didn't exist then. Gawain does, and Gawain is a prominent character, um, but Lancelot, not so. He gets in this list because by the time we translate this into Middle English, Lancelot is a well-established character. But, but, you know, so the way that it talks about Guinevere is not, oh, there is this scandalous thing going on with her and Lancelot, and it's really noble but really also kind of shameful, uh, and Lanval's not okay with it. What we are told about Guinevere is that she just sleeps around and has always slept around. Since before, I mean, when they say, let's marry her, Lanval's like, no, she sleeps around. <laughs> right? And so uh, there's... Uh, and, but Arthur doesn't listen, and he does it anyway. And so he knows she's bad news. She seems to know that he knows she's bad news. And she's against him from the beginning. Notice that that wonderful aside that the narrator gives us when the two nephews of Arthur come back, Lanval's companions, when they return to the court. Uh, and Arthur's like, oh, yeah, how's Lanval doing? And they lie. Um, they lie about it because he asked them to, right? Don't tell them how poor I've gotten. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's great. The reason we look like crap is not because, like, Lanval is dirt poor and can't support us or anything, but because we were out hunting, you know, it's like a manly thing. So, like, our clothes are all ripped just because of how manly we were hunting. And uh, then we just came straight from the hunt because we were impulsive like that. And that's why we look like crap. Um, but Lanval's fine. Thank you for asking. Uh, and then, Gwen, how does Guinevere respond? Curses. Curses. Oh, I wish you were suffering as much pain as possible. Right? I mean... She is just completely anti-Lanval, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Now, so again, the whole, the whole loss of the father thing, uh, you know, while he's married to Guinevere, you know, he is dead to him. I don't want to go too far with it, but I mean, there does seem to be this separation um, and this loss. He is suffering a loss. They, they, the life that he knew... In Arthur's court, he can no longer have. What was his position, by the way? He was the steward. He, he had a position of, of responsibility. He was, uh, he was an important guy in Arthur's court, not just like one of his knights. And he can't, he, he's not going to have the same responsibility over that court. He's not going to preside over this court where now this stuff is going on. Um, so he separates himself from it. Jordan? Um. Yes. And the mayor went to the suburb swan and he the mayor of the sewer is a fox there. What could meat be that there? And he's like, Well, I got up an excuse and comes up with one and let one more follow the like, Now may they say, switch is the visa. Under the hole of little visa. And he's like, Well now I'm not going to just trying to screw me over. Yes. Yes. 
you're right about the former servant, and I think that you're probably right to suggest this guy probably used to be Lanval's vassal. Why Lanval's de- father's death would lead to him losing his father's vassals, I don't know. I mean, unless... No, I can't even think of a reason. I mean, unless Lanval is like a younger son or something, and now his older brother has the land, and so now Lanval has... I, I don't know. I mean, but see here, I think it's... It's a backstory that's constructible, but I think it requires construction. Um, you're, you're right to point out the mayor is the, uh, the only other sort of piece of evidence we get of Lanval's backstory, um, that he was his former, his former servant in some sense. I don't think that we necessarily need to imagine like the mayor being his like, former valet who has now risen in the world. Um, that's probably not likely. Probably vassal, I think, is more likely. Um, but, but anyway... Um, but yeah, as I said, I'm not quite sure exactly where to go with that um, because we just were given so little uh, to work with there. Um, it seems to be, and see, and here I go back to the relationship between appearances and reality. We're given so little explanation, really practical explanation, the kind of explanation that if you were writing a novel about this, uh, in the modern world, you would feel like you absolutely had to give. Like, what is the mechanism by which Lanval becomes poor? Right? You'd have to invent some kind of catastrophe that happened to his lands or something in order to explain it because you'd know that your audience was sitting there reading saying, okay, why is this guy poor? Like, I don't understand why this guy suddenly has no money. This poem gives us very little about that. We're just told, within a year, he was poor. For some reason, we don't know. Exactly. But again, I don't think that's the important point. It seems that, again, as I said, going back to appearances and reality, the poverty of Lanval is almost like a manifestation of his position, of his state. He is now separated from the Arthurian court. He is now looked down on. In, in some ways, you could say, and I was sort of a little bit hinting at this before, though very clumsily, the rejection of him by Guinevere, the, the, the snubbing of him by Guinevere and the passing out of her gifts does seem to sort of directly lead to his poverty, not necessarily in a pragmatic way, like the sum total of the monetary value of the gifts she gave, that she did not give him, therefore led to his financial collapse. I don't mean that. But rather, the, the money, or in this case, the lack of money, his poverty seems to be an outward manifestation of his social position. He is now outcast. He is now scorned. He is now snubbed by the court following Guinevere's directions. Not Arthur. He's still kind of obliviously pro-Lanval and thinks everybody else is too, right? But, but that seems to be not the case. Lanval certainly isn't operating under that impression and Guinevere is certainly not operating under that either. Um, and you can see this in the mayor too. Jordan, exactly in the scene that you pointed out, the fact that the mayor who has previous ties to Lanval and should be grateful to him or appreciative of him, instead is thinking up excuses to turn him away. Oh, I've got these knights from Brittany. Should arrive any minute. It's a shame I can't put you up in my house. But he doesn't totally fail, right? He's going to turn him away. And Lanval's like, yeah, whatever, right? And he's turning away, going to accept the snub when the mayor clearly has, a, like, he tries to kind of, you know, 
fall in the middle, right? I'm not going to totally snub him, but I'm not going to take him in either, right? I'm going to, okay, well, there's this uh, really nice little house out in the orchard you could live in very comfortably and everything. I'm sure it's lovely, that little greenhouse we have out there, whatever that, you know. This is not, I think, we're supposed to be imagining a, you know, palatial guest house that he's given him out there. It is obviously, he's turned him away from the first-rate guest accommodations, uh, but he fo- just is stopping short of, of uh, you know, turfing him back out onto the street. Um, so anyway, as I say, that the, his, his poverty seems to be at least, seems to me anyway, to be at least largely functioning metaphorically. Not that he is not in the story literally poor, he seems to be, but that the force of it seems to be to convey outwardly his outcast state. What do you think? Does that make sense? I'm seeing lots of non-committal gestures and gruntings here. Uh, Maybe, maybe. Other themes? Other things that you noticed? Again, especially pre-fairy? Well, I kind of, you know, we've, we've been talking about how important money is, but I kind of also wonder how, how put upon Sir Longfall is, in a way. Um, because, you know, he, he is, I, obviously I think Arthur does snub him, but if Longfall had pushed, maybe he would have gotten something. But maybe Longfall didn't want to have to push, so I'm just going to go away. <laughs> and I, I need to make an excuse, so I'll go and, and bury my father. So that's what I'm <laughs> I, I kind of wonder how, how dramatic he's, he's being by this well, yeah, I mean, again, certainly Arthur is not, and I never want to see you again. I mean, he's, uh, in fact, it's almost a little surprising, I think, even to the audience when he tells the mayor, you know, I can't return to Arthur's court. Uh, I mean, I know my first reaction re- when reading this was, what, you, what, why not? I mean, you just told Arthur, you're going to go bury your dad and come back. Like, and now you're saying, and I can, may never return. That does seem to come from him. Um, and not be something that... He's not being pushed into exile here. Yet. Uh, this is, does seem to be a kind of a self-imposed exile. But it's not, I think, we don't want to push that so far as to think that Lanval is just like, you know, a drama king here. He is perceiving something real. That is... And it seems to me more like, okay, I'm the steward of the court... Guinevere is coming in. The two of us really are not, cannot both stay. You know, like either this is going to be her kind of court or this is going to be my kind of court and we can't really both operate here. So I'm going to take myself out. Because if Arthur has chosen that thing, which it seems (laughs) that he has chosen, then okay. Then I'm going to let him go. And that's where I think the connection with like mourning the father seems so evocative, right? Um, say, I, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I am going to... So it, that, that does make it self-motivated, right, or self-initiated, but still based on an external factor in that sense. And again, as we, he, not only would it be theoretically possible for him to return, he is in fact going to return. Um, and things will seem to be fine when he does, as we get the hint of when we, hear, when we see Arthur asking after him, when, uh, when Arthur's nephews come back. 
Um, but yeah, I think that that is, uh, that it, that is an important thing. Um, one other thing, and Mac, you brought this up a long time ago, and then, then I kind of pushed it off because the context in which you brought it up was specifically about the promise that, um, that Triamor asks Lanfal to make to her. Um, uh, and that is sort of faithfulness and loyalty and keeping promises. Um, and it's true that I do want to keep specifically the promise that he makes to her uh, to, leave, to save that until next time. But we can still see anticipations of that all the way up, right? That is the issue of faithfulness uh, and loyalty uh, and, well, truth, as they would have used the word in Middle English. Um, that is, your truth is not how accurate your statements are, but how loyal you are. If you are a true person, that means you are loyal and faithful and you stick with people. Um, so, that, and that seems to me an important theme. We can see this in several places, right? We have, of course, the shocking negative example in Guinevere, uh, who the heart of what makes her so horrible is her lack of truth to Arthur. Where else do we see it? Not, not that he organized the mayor's lack of truth, you know, he's some kind of servant, probably should have been. He's going on, well, I'm not selling you anymore. Yes, I agree. The mayor is a really important example. And he, he sort of, he mostly fails the test of his truth. Um, hi, I've been, you know, I mean, I, Lanvall makes it sound like he has been actively exiled from Arthur's court, right? So the, the mayor is not tempted to take him in. Um, we see the mayor wanting to push him off, even though he has. So basically, what the mayor would have to be doing, it seems, in his mind, is doing something which may be actually disadvantageous to me um, by taking in this guy. That there seems to be something at least potentially self-sacrificial in the mayor in taking him in. And he fails that. He does not act self-sacrificially uh, out of loyalty to Lanval. But he doesn't completely fail either. Right? He falls short of, of kicking him out into the streets. So he comes in a peg or two above Guinevere. Well, again, who in the story is not pegs above Guinevere. But uh, he, he does... But still, he, he, he does fall short in his test of truth. The nephews succeed because um, Lanval asks them to lie more than they do. Yes. They stick with him, right? Even after he, and therefore they also, become poor. After a while, they do go back. They're like, look, okay, um, we don't want to say anything, but we are dressed like crap, and we really need to go back and get some clothes. Honestly, we can't take this anymore. Right? And that sounds a little shallow. I don't think it's quite as shallow as, as, as it might sound by that little paraphrase. But they fall short of complete self-sacrifice because they do leave. And they're like, we really want to go back to the court. We're not going to stick it out here any longer. But they do stay faithful to him. They stay with him for a long time. And they cover for him as he asks them to. So the, sort of they stay loyal to his interests. They don't totally sacrifice themselves, right? And join themselves to him in poverty. In the end, they leave. But, but they do really well, generally. Yeah. 
other thing is kind of a two level, an intent, and you know, what you want is totally, you would love to be totally, totally, completely true to um, um, well, he doesn't really act like he's kind of, I don't know, lazy or kind of oblivious to what's actually happening, so he, he doesn't take the, the full steps to enact it, and his spirit, if not his you know, will, is true. Yeah, yeah, Arthur is a kind of a strange case for almost any of these things. You know, like, generosity, yeah, in theory, in practice, eh, I don't know. You know, loyalty, yeah, in theory, in practice, eh, I don't know. Yeah, he's, a, he's kind of a, a strange sort of middle case, but mostly a mostly inactive figure, right, um, through a lot of this. And we will see him become more actively the pawn of the queen as, uh, as times go on. What do we notice about the introduction of L'Enfant to Fairy? That is, when he first encounters the fairies, when he first finds himself in the midst of strange and obviously magical things. What did you notice? What struck you? Um, especially in, in things like similarities, differences with Orfeo. Yeah, yeah, Taylor? He sees a lot of, well, first he notices about two ladies that come to him. I think it's two ladies. Mm-hmm. It is the richness of their outfits and then the pavilion, like crystal bowls on top of the tent holes, and it's a lot like <coughs> Dorothy in that. Here's this guy who was completely and totally impoverished and has nothing. He sees this mind blowing fairy. Yes, yes. That dynamic of ragged, poor, run down guy confronting like New Jerusalem esque splendor, we definitely see that again. The description of her tent is pretty impressive. You see, even the, you know, the maids, not only their clothes, but even like how rich the towels are that they bring in. I mean, even that gets description. Uh, these are the finest silken towels uh, that they bring in. Um, yeah, yeah, even the bathroom accoutrements uh, of fairy are just fantastic. So yeah, that, that's a, that's, so that's a pretty consistent um, uh, parallel, and I agree that's very important. Marta? Um, well, I think we've already, I think Kat touched on it, but um, the fact that he was once again in the forest meeting Harry, um, I feel like location in the forest has had some kind of importance. I don't know what yet, but... Yeah. Yeah, we now... Uh... We are now two for two on forests. And now, and the first time, interestingly, I mean, even you sort of go back to the imp tree, right? She was in an orchard um, under a tree which seems to be at least one way to understand what an imp tree is, is a grafted tree, right? So that is an artificially, you know, a, a tree which is the product of human art and horticulture, right? But, but, but it's still a tree that she's under. Uh, and that's when the fairy king finds her. And, of course, Orfeo himself is not able to enter in and follow her until he completely immerses himself uh, in the forest for 10 years. So yeah, that's, that's a trend. And we'll certainly, we'll certainly be able to trace that. That's not going to go away anytime soon. But I think it's not... I, I think there we have to be careful not to be too simplistic in how we read that. Um, we could say, well, yeah, fairies, forests nature, the natural world, okay. But I think it's not quite, it needs to be only that simple. Um, And I think that we need to be looking at, especially, you think in this case, what we see about the forest 
the emphasis I think that we can see connecting both of these two stories so far is not just that the forest is a natural place, but both times the guy who, the ragged, dirty, poor guy who gets into the miraculously splendid world of fairy does so in a state of exile, in both cases, self-exile from human society. Both of them are poor almost by choice. Orfeo, absolutely by choice. Launval, kind of by choice. Both of them are in the woods in order to separate themselves from society. Remember, Orfeo didn't, like, set out on a quest to find Herodotus. He just went to be removed from human society. And that's, when he enc- that's where he encounters fairy. Launval doesn't meet them until he makes the finals. He's already separated himself from the court, but he's still hanging around the town. That, I think, is an interesting thing about the mayor. Right? You've got the king... Arthur, who's, the, who's the, the king of the court, and then you've got the mayor, who's the, who's, the, who's the ruler of the town. The court and the town are very different sort of political entities uh, in the medieval world. Now he's separating himself from both, right? Uh, on, this, on this morning, when everybody else is at church and he wishes he could go to church, but he doesn't even have, you know, the, the, the shoes and hose to, 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 to go there, uh, now he goes out into the forest, and that's the final moment of his complete separation and isolation from the rest of humanity, and that's when fairy finds him. So that, that is just sort of one example of how we can think about that forest setting. One thing that I think we can see correlated with that forest setting. Okay, I'm going to let you go. We will start with uh, the amorous encounter between Lanval and the fairy and look at the, their relationship as it continues before our suspenseful ending at the end of the poem. Okay, tune in next time when we will discuss how Sir Lanval's fortunes take a very sudden and very dramatic turn for the better. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.